Metamore Studios proudly presents Metamore City, Season 2, a podcast series written and performed by Chris Lester. For show notes and author contact information, please visit metamorecity.com. Featuring the vocal talents of Michael Spence, Genevieve Seven, Nobilis Reed, Indiana Jim, Danae Winters, Deirdre Reed, Susan Murph, and TD0013. These stories may contain adult language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Whispers in the Wood, Part 3. October 29th. When Abby awoke, Janus was sitting in a chair next to the coffee table. He was speaking quietly into his earpiece and making notes on his pad as he did so. He must have sensed her eyes on him, because he looked up at her almost immediately. Preston's awake. I'll check in after I debrief her. Thanks again, Candace. He tapped a button on his earpiece, then nodded to Abby. Good morning. Thanks to you, Abby said putting her hands behind her head and arching to stretch the muscles in her back. I don't want to think about what could have happened if that thing had caught me. I have a few suspicions. But first, tell me what you learned. Abby ran through the story of her encounters with the Leonanshi and the thing that lived in the violin. Janus listened intently throughout, making notes on his pad as she spoke. So, we have a violin that channels the suffering of the dead. A man with enough latent psychic talent to understand the instrument's potential. A fairy who uses her art to enhance the man's native talent while feeding on his life force, which incidentally slows the advance of his cancer and allows him to continue his work. And then we have... this. He gestured at the door where he had stopped the shadow's advance. A host of tortured spirits drawn to the violin and bound by its power. He tapped his pen once against the pad, a short and irritated gesture. That explains the new moon killings. It's the only time of the month when they can manifest strongly enough to harm a person in the flesh. I don't get it. Why are they so protective of the violin when it's feeding on their pain? Janus shrugged one shoulder. People want to be understood. They want their pain to be acknowledged by others. Why do you think so many come to hear Wells play? Abby nodded, conceding the point. So the ghosts are getting the same thing out of the concerts that the humans do. They feel like someone understands their suffering. But when someone tries to take the violin away from Wells, or gets more interested in the messenger than the message... Exactly. They become jealous. They lash out. And when they're done, another spirit is added to the mob. Abby thought back to the shades that had vanished when they had gotten too close to Threnody. She shivered. It was bad enough seeing the echoes of human souls being sucked into the violin. If that could happen to actual, self-aware spirits as well, it was literally a fate worse than death. How did this get started? I sensed one voice inside Threnody that seemed to be stronger than all the others. Do you think that was the first spirit to bond with the violin? Almost certainly. Candace found something interesting when she looked into the history of the instrument. He took out his earpiece and pressed a button on the side. Candace, please tell Miss Preston what you just told me. Candace's voice came out of a speaker on the side of the earpiece, surprisingly loud and clear. Okay, there are still some big gaps in the chain of ownership, but I think we found the record for when this thing was made. 
The violin matches the style of a luthier named Emilio Venturi, who lived from 1507 to 1549. From 1541 until his death, he crafted the Divinities, a set of 18 violins that were supposedly the greatest ever made without the use of magic. Each of the 18 was named for one of the gods, and they were supposed to be able to call up the emotions connected to that deity when they were played. Wow. So which one was Threnody? None of them. All 18 are accounted for. Four were destroyed, three are held by private collectors, and the rest are in museums. So he made another one that wasn't part of the series? Yep. In 1543, Venturi's wife committed suicide. No one knows why. Apparently, Venturi went nuts for a while, locked himself in his workshop, and wouldn't talk to anybody. He stopped working on the divinities and made another violin for his dead wife. Said it would be her voice from beyond the grave. Well, the violin had a strange red color when it was finished, and some people said he used his wife's blood in the varnish. Abby shuddered. Whatever he did, I guess it worked. Well, he had help. Venturi died three months shy of his 42nd birthday, which was young even for back then. They say he aged rapidly while working on the divinities, and died only a month after finishing the last of them. His funeral was attended by a tall elven woman with red hair and green eyes. And elves don't have red hair. Three guesses as to who she was. The Leonenshi. No wonder she's interested in the violin. She helped make it. And it explains why the violin is able to capture souls without appearing to be magical. The fairy wasn't drawing on mortal magic when she and Venturi made it. She was drawing on the Newman. Abby and Janus looked at each other. We have all the pieces now, except one. Why did... Candace, what was Venturi's wife's name? Mm, Rosanna. Why did Rosanna kill herself? Abby spread her hands in front of her. Her spirit's the key to the whole thing. I can feel it. If I can get through to her, separate her out from that... that monstrosity that she's gotten turned into, maybe I can untangle the whole mess and get those spirits back into the afterlife where they belong. Janus stroked the stubble on his chin. Abby had never seen him with stubble before. She didn't think it suited him. Candace, what's the projection if we destroy the violin? Not great. Our diviners give us a 40% chance that the spirits get released to the afterlife, a 40% chance that they find something new to attach themselves to, and a 20% chance that the spirits might just go revenant and try to kill us all. She paused, then added, No bets on what the fairy will do. She might not care, or she might wreak vengeance on you and yours for the next ten generations. It's hard to say. What about containment? Could you throw it in a vault or something? Maybe, but that only delays the problem. I don't want to bury the violin for another 400 years and risk someone forgetting why we held on to the thing. He added in a softer voice. Besides, there are the spirits themselves to consider. They're being held captive by a force they don't understand that does nothing but remind them of their pain. They deserve to be set free. Abby looked at Janus with newfound respect. For once, I agree with you completely. Now let's figure out how to save them, preferably without getting me killed in the process. When Isaac Wells opened the door to his flat, Abby thought he was actually going to run for it. The thought certainly passed through his mind, and Abby couldn't blame him. Janus cut an impressive figure in his Lothanasi uniform, the spellweave fabric glistening white in the dim light of the hallway.
The blue and gold insignia of the twin cross on his sleeves left no doubt about who Wells was dealing with. Dr. Isaac Wells? The aging man stared at him for two full seconds, then slumped, defeated. He sighed. Yes, Agent. I suppose you'll want to come in, then. If you would be so kind. There are some urgent matters we would like to discuss with you. Wells shot a look at Abby. The sense of betrayal he felt was obvious, but Abby met his eyes without flinching. Please, Professor. You need to hear this. He looked at her a moment longer, then back at Janus. His back straightened a little as he tried to recover some of his dignity. Very well, then. He opened the door and stood aside. Janus went in first and circled the sitting area, laying down a set of iron nails and drawing signs of warding between them with his fingertips. The sigils glowed blue-white against the wooden floor, as Wells and Abby took seats opposite each other. What is he doing? Wells murmured, as Janus drew a more elaborate set of symbols around Threnody's display stand. These were interspersed with silver coins about the size of a quarter mark, with the symbol of the twin cross engraved on them. Abby didn't sense any reaction from the violin, but that was not particularly surprising. It was about noon, and the spirits would be at their weakest. Just making certain that we are not interrupted, Janus said, as he laid the last of the symbols and took the seat next to Abby. There are facts of which your mistress might prefer that you remain unaware. Wells's eyes widened. Abby could see him consider denying everything, but he must have realized that playing dumb would be useless. What do you know about her? I think that first we'd better hear what you know about her. Abby suggested. So we can figure out how guilty you actually are. Wells looked down at his hands. It took him a few seconds to find his voice. She came to me in my dreams at first. About a week after the doctors diagnosed that my illness was terminal. She told me that I had a great gift, one that I could use to do great things with her help. She showed me a picture of this pawn shop near the university. That's where I found her. He looked up at them, and Abby could see the tears in his eyes. Understand, I've been playing the violin my whole life. For a while I tried to make a career of it, but... The opportunities were never there. I ended up as a professor of music history instead. Most of the time I enjoyed it, but I always wanted to be the one in front of the audience. Musicians could stir people's hearts, make them feel. As a professor, all I could do was engage their minds. <laughs> and often not even that. The lady promised to change that, and she did. Abby looked over at Janus, but the Lightbringer was still gazing intently at Wells. What did you give her in exchange? Wells wrung his hands. Well, she wanted an audience, of course. The work had to have my undivided attention. I retired from the university, sold most of what I owned, and went where she led me. I was already almost broke from the doctor bills, so it wasn't as if there was much holding me down. He shrugged. We'd come to a new city, play for a few weeks, and I'd save for my next train ticket. When she said it was time to move on, we moved on. Did she ask you for anything else? Wells hesitated. 
During the first few concerts, the response from the audience wasn't as great as I'd been hoping for. I could see the potential, I could feel it when I played, but somehow it wasn't reaching the people in the seats. I thought there was something wrong with me. She said there wasn't, but that we weren't as close as we needed to be. She said she needed to know me better if we were going to work well together. So she asked for my name. From the way he said it, Abby could tell that he knew how dangerous it was. Even if he hadn't known he was dealing with a fairy, giving your name to any kind of supernatural creature was just asking for trouble. This was my lifelong dream, he said, his tone pleading. I was already dying, and I'd done so little in my life that felt like it mattered to anyone. So what if I gave her a mortgage on my soul? What had I ever done with it that was worth a damn? He shook his head. She gave me the chance to help people. I took it. Silence fell across the table for a long moment. Dr. Wells, are you aware that your instrument has been connected to the deaths of 15 people over the past year? Wells stared at him. Fifteen? I... She killed to protect me a few times. Violent men, criminals. I never reported it to the police because I was afraid they'd take her away from me. But not fifteen, not that many. You're right, Abby said quickly. I spoke to your lady last night, while you slept. She admitted to killing four men who tried to hurt you. But the lady who appears in your dreams isn't Threnody. And Threnody has secrets she hasn't told you. Wells looked back and forth between her and Janus. Perhaps you had better tell me your side of the story now. Janus glanced at Abby, his eyes questioning. Abby nodded. He really doesn't know. Together they told Wells what they had learned about the history of the violin and the spirits bound to it. The old professor listened with increasing anxiety. By the time they finished, his hands were shaking. I had no idea. His eyes were fixed on the violin where it stood in the corner. I'd always suspected Threnody was a Venturi violin. All the signs were there. But to think that he would imprison his own wife's spirit in some kind of twisted homage to her. To be fair, he probably didn't know that was how it worked. He just wanted a way to give voice to his wife's pain and the Leonanshi knew how to do it. Fairies have a habit of twisting people's wishes around. Including mine. He blinked the tears out of his eyes, then looked back at Janus. How can we make this right, Agent Starson? I don't know if we can. Miss Preston needs to make contact with the spirit of Rosanna Venturi and find out how to release her. It's likely that the bond between her and the violin is what is holding the other spirits in place. Free her and the others should follow. Wells grimaced. Trinity doesn't trust strangers. Miss Preston could be harmed. I think we can use you as a bridge. If you can open a link to Threnody, then I can link up with you and talk to her through that connection. Um, link up? Abby grinned sheepishly. Sorry, I'm a telepath. Did we forget to mention that? <clears throat> yes, actually. But no matter. He turned to Janus. Will it break your circle if I bring Threnody over here? Janus rose to his feet. Yes, but we aren't going to accomplish anything more by sitting here talking. Do what you have to. I'll make sure you aren't disturbed. 
He drew Lemisil from its sheath and took up a position by the door. The elven sigils on the blade glowed a soft yellow. Wells looked at the sword, swallowed visibly, then carried Threnody over to the couch. Cradling the violin like a newborn, Wells took a deep breath and closed his eyes. He grew very still, so much so that Abby wondered if he had fallen asleep. But when she brushed the surface of his mind, he responded immediately. Not yet. Abby waited. When about five minutes had passed, Wells twitched two fingers in her direction. Taking the invitation, Abby slipped into his mind. She sensed the multitude of spirits lingering at the edges of perception, angry and suspicious. One stood apart from the others, closer to Wells and stronger in his mind. In her mind's eye, Abby saw the woman take shape, a Pyralian lady, slender and elegant, with a strong nose and dark hair braided in a very old style. Her skin was unnaturally pale, as if all the blood had been drained from her body. A glowing red chain ran from her ankle to the violin. Her dark eyes burned with anger as she recoiled from Abby's presence. What is she doing here? She wants to talk to you. The ghost didn't seem interested in being soothed. She lunged at Abby, her fingernails lengthening into claws. Scheming a bitch! You can't have him! I'd tear out your heart! Abby summoned a shield of thought and blocked the attack easily. Threnody might be deadly at night, but at midday she was weak and vulnerable. Abby caught the ghost's hands between her own and held them. I don't want him. I'm not here for your maestro. I'm here for you, Rosanna Venturi. The ghost went still in an instant. She stared at Abby in open astonishment. You know my, my name? Abby smiled kindly at her. I do. I want to help you, Rosanna. Rosanna frowned and pulled her hands out of Abby's grasp. Her fingernails were back to normal. How can you help me? Her tone was bitter, as if she didn't really believe that anyone would even want to help her, much less actually be able to do it. By listening. Listening to your story. Nobody's ever done that before, have they? People hear you singing about your pain, but all they ever hear is their own. Nobody really knows you. She spread her hands in invitation. Well, I'm here now. I'll hear your story, Rosanna Venturi, if you'll share it with me. Rosanna turned away from her, took a step, then paused. After a long moment, she turned halfway back, so that Abby was looking at her face and profile. She bowed her head. You would know my pain? I would. The ghost nodded once, as if to herself. She stretched out a hand to Abby without looking at her. Come with me, then. The other spirits whispered in agitation at that, and a few of them let out snarls of jealousy. Rosanna quelled them with a look. Abby stepped forward and took her hand. Instantly, she was transported elsewhere. And at last, the final piece of the puzzle fell into place. That night, two stools sat side by side under the spotlight on the little stage. When the violinist came forth from the shadows, he was not alone. A plain-featured young woman, brown-haired, brown-eyed, and unassuming, sat down beside him, 
gazing out at the crowd with a pensive expression on her face. Those who had been there before whispered to each other in confusion, wondering what this might mean. The maestro spoke. Good evening. For those of you who've never been here before, welcome. While I realize that it might not look like it, you are about to witness something extraordinary. For those who have heard Trinity before, this will be unlike any other show you have seen. He held the violin aloft, turning this way and that to show her to the crowd. For the last year, I have carried this fair lady from one end of the Empire to the other. You have heard her sing of grief, of sorrow, and loss. And in her songs you have heard the universe singing your own pain back to you. I believed that she was sent to us as proof that some higher force in creation understood our suffering, that on some level we were all united in our pain, and that this was proof that we are all brothers and sisters. Many around the audience nodded in agreement. They stopped when the maestro frowned and shook his head. I still believe that our pain can unite us. But I know now that Threnody's song is not the story of all people everywhere. It is the story of one anguished woman whose spirit has been in torment for 456 years as she gave this instrument its power. He gestured to Abby. With the help of my friend here, she will tell you her story. Her name is Rosanna Venturi, and this is her final performance. Wells lifted the violin to his chin and began to play. As the clear, pure tones of the song filled the recital hall, Abby reached out for Rosanna Venturi, finding her easily among the weaker shades and spirits that the violin had imprisoned. In her mind's eye, she saw the ghost reach out and take her hand, her memories opened themselves to Abby in a rush, and behind them Abby felt the wild, ancient power of the Leonanchi's art. That power tethered Rosanna to the violin, but it also connected her to all who heard it. Abby used that connection to build a telepathic link to the audience, and before anyone realized what was happening, Rosanna's life passed before their eyes. Abby saw it happen just as everyone else did, a ripple across her vision, as if reality were merely a reflection in a pool and someone had tossed in a stone. The distortion passed, and Abby saw the image of a much younger Rosanna, looking up at her from the polished surface of a violin. Abby blinked, and the reflection blinked with her. She felt the slight weight of the violin in her hands and cradled it gently against her body. "'It's beautiful, Emilio,' she said in a voice that was not her own, Rosanna's voice." Your best work yet, I think. She looked up at her husband. Rosanna's husband, Abby reminded herself, though at the moment the distinction felt unimportant. Emilio's bright, merry eyes twinkled, lighting up his handsome face. Count Bellini thought so as well. His face split into a grin. Rosanna, he gave me the contract for the new opera house. It took a moment for Rosanna to process what Emilio was saying. But that's... Twenty-six violins, Emilio said, savoring the words. Ten violas, eight violoncellos. But that, that will take years. At least five, yes, 
if I do nothing else and commit all of my efforts to the Count's project. He agreed. Rosanna's eyes went wide. You have a patron? Emilio took the violin from her hands, then took them in his own. I have a patron. (laughs) Rosanna laughed, a surprised, delighted sound. She threw her arms around her husband's neck and kissed him. He returned the kiss hungrily. When they parted, he was wearing the mischievous smile she loved so much. He looked immensely pleased with himself, and Rosanna could not blame him. So what happens now, my love? Count Bellini wants me close to him. We will move the workshop to Pirale's city. The men are coming next week to begin taking our things. Rosanna's heart sank a little at that. She looked around at the small but comfortable house they shared, with the meadow out back and the cliffs overlooking the sea. It will be hard to leave this place. The city is so... so crowded. Emilio put a hand on her shoulder. Take heart, my dear. The nephew Alfonso is newly married. He and his wife will be our caretakers here. We can come back to rest here whenever my duties permitted. All right. Rosanna smiled again and thought of the benefits of Count Valini's patronage. It would mean long and difficult work for Emilio, but it would also mean that his genius would at last be recognized by the larger world. Everyone who came to the new opera house would hear the Venturi violins, and word would spread about the beauty and craftsmanship of her husband's instruments. It was his lifelong dream and it would be childish of her to resent so small a price as a change in scenery. Perhaps she would even come to enjoy the city. Come now, let us celebrate our good fortune. Rosanna felt her smile turn impish. And how shall we do that, O husband mine? Amelia reached behind her and found the laces of her bodice. Oh, I have a few ideas. The vision rippled and changed. Rosanna's reflection appeared before her once more, now wearing the finery of a 16th century lady at the height of fashion. There were new lines on her face, especially around the eyes, but they were mostly disguised by the elaborate makeup she wore to complement her wardrobe. The door to her bedchamber opened and Emilio walked in. His white lace collar stood in striking contrast to the black velvet doublet and breeches. The black satin cape he wore over it was new, embroidered in gold and trimmed with ermine. Rosanna briefly wondered how much it had cost, then realized it probably didn't matter. There you are. Rosanna watched in the mirror as her husband came up behind her and slipped his arms around her. Everyone is asking after you. Rosanna smiled, but the expression did not reach her eyes. I find that hard to believe. But it is the truth. They say, yes, yes, Venturi, it is very good to see you, but where is your beautiful wife? He gestured at their reflections. And when you compare us side by side, well, I can see their point, no? (laughs) Rosanna let out a laugh in spite of herself. Emilio kissed her cheek. There, you smile, and the world is brighter for it. Come join me for the party, won't you? I miss seeing your lovely face beside me. Rosanna half-turned and leaned into him, and he wrapped his arms around her in an instinctive embrace. And I miss you. 
all these dinners and balls and performances. When will it end, Emilio? When can I have you for myself again? Emilio reached up to stroke her hair, then stopped when he felt the elaborate hairdo that fashion demanded that she wear for such events. He brushed her cheek with his fingertips instead. Soon, my love. My commitment to Count Bellini is nearly completed. When it is done, I shall take my earnings and go with you to our house by the sea. I think a year's rest is a fair reward for all our efforts, is it not? Rosanna closed her eyes and thought of the little house, the wildflowers in the meadow, the sound of the surf crashing below, and her husband holding her close in the quiet hours of the night. Ah, that sounds lovely. Patience then, my love. We must play the nobleman's game only a little longer. They returned downstairs, to the guests who had arrived to celebrate the opera's successful opening. Emilio kept Rosanna beside him for a time, deftly fending off the noblewomen who so often treated her as an outsider and a country rube. Within the hour, though, the Count swept Emilio away for a drink and a cigar with his fellow lords, leaving Rosanna alone once more. Emilio gave her an apologetic look as he was ushered off. There goes the last interesting man at this whole affair, someone said behind her. Rosanna turned toward the voice and found a truly striking elf maid, a tall and exotic beauty with fair skin, brilliant green eyes, and red hair. She stood half a head taller than Rosanna and wore a low-cut dress of vivid crimson. Rosanna was astonished that she hadn't noticed the woman before now. I... I'm sorry? Your husband. He has an exceptional talent. Many will give the credit for tonight's performance to the musicians, but they're only as good as their instruments. The Count was wise to hire him. Rosanna smiled a little, feeling the familiar mixture of pride, love, bitterness, and regret that accompanied most of her thoughts about her husband's work. Yes, Emilio has a rare gift. I am happy that it is finally appreciated. She hesitated. Only. The elf maid cocked her head, gazing intently at Rosanna. Yes, it has been rather hard for you, hasn't it? Poor dear. She took Rosanna's hand and squeezed it gently, then nodded her head to the side as if to take in the whole room. This is a den of vipers for those who do not know their ways. I... Yes. There was something in the woman's eyes that unsettled Rosanna. She carefully extracted her hand, making a show of fussing with her hairdo. I'm sorry, but I don't believe we've met before. The elf maid gave her a very broad smile. You may call me Melodia, my dear. Melodia? That doesn't sound elvish. Because it is not. But song and music are my trade. And so it suits me. I see. Rosanna gave her a brief, tentative nod. Well, you can call me Rosanna, then. Rosanna. The woman repeated the name, and on her lips it seemed to fill the room with the clear, pure tones of a ringing bell. It sent a shiver down Rosanna's spine to hear it. It is a pleasure to meet you, my dear. I'm sure we will become very good friends. A third ripple broke the surface of the vision. 
Rosanna saw herself reflected once more, now in the face of a coin that glistened mirror-bright in her hand. It shone like silver, but her skin quivered with a feeling of energy, a vitality that was like nothing she had ever experienced. The stranger who had given it to her smiled thinly. His gaze transfixed her, the faded green eyes glittering like a predator's in the glow from the hearth fire behind her. Rosanna handed the coin to Emilio, who took it with almost reverent care. Mithril? A coin made of Mithril? He looked up at the man, who stood patiently on the doorstep of their little house. Who are you? A collector. He spoke in an even, resonant voice that made Rosanna grow cold to hear it. One with an interest in your craftsmanship, Emilio Venturi. I came to Pyralis City in search of you, but they told me you had gone. I was... disappointed. Emilio swallowed, visibly nervous. Good sir, I am sorry to have inconvenienced you. I am on leave. No longer. I have a contract for you, Maestro Venturi. One that will secure your name forever as the unparalleled master of your trade. Her husband grew still at that. He looked thoughtfully down at the coin, then back up at the man. May I come in? So that we may discuss the matter further? Of course, please, Emilio said at last. Have a seat, good sir, and be welcome. The man smiled again that cold serpent smile, and came in out of the night. Rosanna brought the stranger tea, and he presented them with his extraordinary proposal, a matched set of eighteen violins, one for each of the fallen gods and goddesses of the Pantheon. Each would be attuned to the service and nature of the deity whose name it bore, crafted to sing its praises and echo its ethos down through the generations. For each one Emilio completed, he would receive ten of the mithril coins as payment, equal to a year's salary from any other patron. Rosanna gaped at the offer. That is very generous, sir. It is not. You will earn this commission, Venturi. The instruments must be flawless. If you must craft and discard a hundred violins before you find the proper design, so be it. If I find them unworthy of the price, there will be... consequences. Do you understand me? Emilio's eyes widened. Perfectly, sir, I assure you. But I can do it. I will take the job. Good. The stranger rose to his feet. Use the coin to acquire whatever materials you need. I shall return in two months' time and evaluate your progress. Do not disappoint me, Venturi. He went to the door and opened it. Sir, wait! The man looked back over his shoulder, waiting. If I may, sir, I would know the name of the man I work for? The man turned back to the door. Malcolm. Good night, Venturi. The door shut behind him as he left. Rosanna did not see him grasp the handle. The crash in her husband's workshop sent Rosanna running. She found Emilio on his knees, the broken neck of an unpainted violin in his hand. The rest of it sat forlorn several feet away. Garbage! He spat, 
halfway between sobs and rage. It's garbage. God's blood, what is wrong with me? Oh, Emilio. Rosanna knelt at his side, embracing him. He turned and buried his head in her chest, his whole body shaking. Rosanna cast her eyes to the pile of ruined violins in the corner of the workshop. Malcolm had been profoundly displeased with Emilio's first two attempts, and his rebukes had broken her husband's confidence. Another month had passed since the patron's last visit, and Emilio had yet to complete a single instrument. I cannot do it, Rosanna. My muse has left me. I am ruined. Have I come at an ill time? Rosanna looked up, then blinked and looked again. There in the workshop door stood Melodia, her red hair glowing in the afternoon sunlight. She wore a dark gray traveling cloak and riding boots, and carried a large bag over one shoulder, none of which detracted from her beauty in the least. I heard of your commission, she said, as she entered the shop and set her bag on a workbench. You have taken a dangerous patron, maestro. He does not take kindly to those who fail him. I know, Emilio whispered, sounding lost. But what can I do? The elf woman smiled. I can help you, maestro. As I told your wife when last we met, music is my trade. There are secrets I can teach you. Secrets that will bring forth the songs of the divine that you have struggled to give voice. Rosanna felt a twinge of suspicion. If that is so, then why have you not sought Malcolm's commission for yourself? Melodia turned her eyes on Rosanna. My dear Rosanna. Almost immediately, Rosanna felt herself grow calmer, though she could not have said why. I never work alone. I teach others and help them to reach their greatest potential. It is my life's work. She turned back to Emilio. What say you, maestro? Will you apprentice yourself to me? Do so, and I will make your name great. Emilio looked at her a long moment, then rose to his feet. My lady, I am at my wit's end. If there is anything you can teach me, then I will make myself a student again and learn all I can. Melodia smiled warmly. Very well, maestro. I shall teach you. Please, call me Emilio. The elf woman's smile broadened. Oh, I shall, my dear Emilio. Indeed, I shall. You've been listening to episode 44 of the Metamore City Podcast, written and performed by Chris Lester. This episode featured the voice talents of Indiana Jim as Janus Starson, Genevieve Seven as Abby Preston, Susan Murph as Candace, Michael Spence as Isaac Wells, Deidre Reed as Rosanna Venturi, Nobilis Reed as Emilio Venturi, Danae Winters as the Leonanshi, and TD0013 as Malcolm Ardvalos. Some music provided by David Beard at davidbeardmusic.com, used with permission. Other music and sound effects provided by Digital Juice at digitaljuice.com, Medio Music Alley at musicalley.com, SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, 
and The Free Sound Project at freesound.org. This audio adaptation of Whispers in the Wood was recorded and mixed at Metamore Studios in Berkeley, California. The story and recording are both copyright 2009 by Chris Lester. This recording is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City Podcast, right after these messages. Among the querulous island kingdoms of Wefravane, the only unifying power is religion, a wyvern cult ruled by an eccentric high priestess. The system is under attack by a gang of pirates called the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, who prey on temple treasure ships. The temple police charged with eradicating this menace keep disappearing. Enter Gerard, a young prince exiled from his small island kingdom for rashly marrying the court minstrel. My captain of police has been missing for a red month. It is time to consider him dead, and I have decided that you will replace him. Gerard is smart, honorable, and a little naive. To break the pirate ring, he must cooperate with a wily, amoral colleague who has already tried to kill him twice. Everyone's wrong. Everyone cheats. Everyone will sell you for the right price. There are no real choices. As Gerard struggles to protect his talented wife, You are good. Good things cannot be evil. Obey his seductive employer. I'm sorry to have startled you, Captain. No, you're not. You're enjoying it. And forge a complicated friendship with his dangerous co-worker. I'm not your friend, Holivar. I've given you my one and only piece of good advice. Go home. He becomes increasingly aware that the pirates have a legitimate quarrel with the wyverns. Dark secrets lurk in the temple dungeons, and solving them will cost Gerard far more than his honor. The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers is an illustrated podcast. Learn more and view illustrations at cowriecatchers.com. I'm the author, Abigail Hilton, and you may have listened to my first series, The Prophet of Panamandora. Cowrie Catchers is a darker, grittier story. Subscribe and experience a Panamandora you've never heard before. Okay, so here's the deal. Your name is Charles Cunningham, and you're a wealthy real estate developer. Good news. You die unexpectedly and find yourself in purgatory, the place between heaven and hell. Bad news. You befriend two other souls doing time there, the writer Edgar Allan Poe and a fun-loving beach bum. Good news. You still feel depressed about your untimely death. Bad news. You get a letter from God saying that once you learn some lessons, you can go to heaven. Good news. You don't know what those lessons are. Bad news. You decide to take the portal back to Earth with Poe and mend fences with the daughter you neglected while you made your fortune. Good news. An unfriendly soul, an enemy you made in life, is determined to follow you to Earth and keep you from winning passage to Heaven. Bad news. Did I mention the enemy is a jilted ex-lover with a rather nasty disposition, a limited conscience, and a willingness to kill if necessary? Really bad news. Purgatory is the new supernatural time-travel comedy novel from Tim Dodge, the author of Acts of Desperation. Subscribe to the free podcast today at www 
PurgatoryNovel.com. It's an otherworldly experience. Hi, this is Danny Cutler, host of the Truth Seekers podcast, which you can find at www.truthseekerscast.com. And I also am Sasha in Making the Cut. And you are listening to the Metamore City podcast. And we're back. And we're on schedule. Barely, but we're on schedule. And I'm going to take it. It's before midnight here on the 12th, so I call that a win. So I got back from Oricon 31 on Thanksgiving weekend, and that was a tremendous amount of fun. I had some car trouble during the trip, but everything worked out well, and I got to spend a great weekend hanging out with Abigail Hilton. She's the author of Cowrie Catchers and the Prophet of Panamandora podcast. Say that ten times fast. She attempted to teach me how to ice skate while I was there, with mixed results, and I gave her her first con experience, with generally positive results. We also got to hang out with Patricia Briggs, who is the author of the Mercy Thompson and Alpha Omega urban fantasy novels. She is an engaging writer and a very high-quality human being. I definitely recommend checking out her work if you're into urban fantasy at all, which, if you're listening to Metamore City, chances are you probably are. I'd like to give special thanks and recognition to the con chair, Deborah Stansbury, my guest of honor liaison, Ruth Timmons, and Craig and Lillian Irvine, the diehard metamorphs who recommended me to Deborah as a special guest. Thank you guys all for making my Thanksgiving break so fun and memorable. I had a fantastic time, and I hope to see you guys at Oricon again next year. If you've got feedback, please send it in to 206-202-8530. That is 206-202-8530. You can also email it to feedback at metamorecity.com in text or audio, or you can participate in the discussion forums at thecurse.org or the Facebook group Fans of Metamore City. We're gathering responses for the first Metamore City feedback show of Season 2. I hope to record that sometime in January, soon after the holiday madness is over. In the meantime, if you want to hear me, Dan, Kitty, and Gail Carragher up to our usual shenanigans, keep your eyes on the Down From 10 feed. There should be a feedback show dropping there soon. That's downfrom10.jdsawyer.net. Also, be on the lookout for the second sex roundtable with me, Dan, Kitty, and Philippa Ballantyne. That should be dropping in our feeds sometime between Christmas and New Year's, if Dan and Kitty are able to get it all edited in time. I have a few appearances in other podcasts coming up. In addition to my ongoing role as Jeremiah in Down From Ten, I'm going to be playing a bit part in Pip Ballantyne's Digital Magic. That's at digitalmagicnovel.com. And I'm also going to be the guest chef for Pip's Erotica a la Carte podcast in January. That's at eroticaalacarte.com. Pip's listeners have requested that I write them a sexy supernatural story of dominance and submission set in a lonely corner of the world. So tune in next month to see if I can pull it off. I'm going to be in Michigan visiting family and friends from December 22nd through December 30th, so the next episode is going to need to be pushed back an extra week. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry, but hey, how many of you guys are really listening to podcasts during Christmas anyway? Look for it on the evening of January 2nd. In the meantime, I wish you all peace and joy as you celebrate whatever holidays are meaningful to you with the people who matter most in your lives. Take care, and until next time, keep it on the bright side. 
This is Chris Lester signing out. Do you hear that, Emilio Venturi? That is the sound of inevitability. The sound of your death. Okay. Ooh. Has sound. Understood. <clears throat> okay, sound check. Ye. We are checking the sound. <laughs> we are. We are checking the sound. It's the only time of the month when they can manifest. It's the only time of the month. Too precise, you think? <clears throat> she came to my dreams. Ugh. <laughs> Give me a minute so it doesn't make me laugh. Okay. Bless you. Did you have sex last night? Exactly. <laughs> Score. And Threnody has secrets she hasn't told you. Has secrets. Secrets. <laughs> Victoria, it's Threnody's secret. I know, right? Oh boy. Now I'm picturing lingerie with violin strings on. Huh. <laughs> and the Leonanshi. She. Leonanshi. Leonanshi. Yes. I think a year's yet. <laughs> I'm here for you, Rosanna. Of... <laughs> and by good friends, I mean I will fuck you up. <laughs> Note to Paulette, um, go mostly with the first take on that one. <laughs>